Human resources, employee relations, the legal department are aligned against you. Your employer has trained for this day, the day you've become an expendable number at work. There are robust laws that may protect you, but unlike the company, you've not been drilled on how to wield them. You're playing catch-up. There are pitfalls to avoid and countermeasures to deploy that may save your job or put you in the best position to negotiate a favorable settlement. Minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. The Walking Papers podcast offers the first foray into learning how to turn the tables when you've been targeted at work. Knowledge is power. Let's get started. Welcome to episode nine of the Walking Papers podcast. I am Robert Ingalls and I will be your host. The title of this episode is The Price is Right. What can you recover if you win your wrongful termination case? Tell us about that title, Josh. Well, uh, so I remember being at Pop Pop's house is my grandpa and uh, I hope that I'm right. I'm pretty sure it was 11 o'clock in the morning. Price is right, or maybe noon every day. And if if uh, maybe the younger listeners may not even know what Price is Right is, but it was a game where you were you were basically guessing to the dollar the price of a car or a washer, or a dryer, uh, things like that. And um, and in a wrongful termination case, part of what a lawyer is going to do for you is is figure out uh, what your case is worth. And you know we're going to. Uh, actually help you to do that in this podcast uh, by explaining what sort of factors lawyers consider when they're figuring out the price of a, a wrongful termination case. Gotcha. So let's say I'm thinking of filing a wrongful termination case, but I really don't know whether it's worth it. What kind of questions should I be asking myself? Well, there's, a, you know, when we value a case, uh, we do so on two axes. So uh, the first is, you know, what is the likelihood that we're going to win in our case? And I think we'll probably do a, a separate podcast on that one, Rob, to try to predict likelihood of success and what the factors we consider on whether or not we're going to win. But the the other axis, which is a lot you know easier to analyze, is assuming you win, what, what are you likely to uh, receive? What sort of damages are you likely to receive? From a jury, and on that one, you know, it's math and and buckets, and so there are different buckets that a jury or a judge can you know, can put money in, and so we're gonna go over those various buckets and describe them, and also some ranges of, of dollars that can be put in those buckets. Gotcha. So what? Tell me about some of those buckets. All right. So uh, lucky seven. So, uh, if, you know, uh, we're going to rattle them off all together. So just the roadmap. First, we're going to talk about back pay and back fringe benefits. That's bucket one. Bucket two is front pay and benefits, which is basically future lost wages. Uh, the third is reputational damage. The fourth being what are called consequential damages. Fifth, pain and suffering or emotional distress. Sixth, liquidated damages or punitive damages. And then the, the final bucket, my favorite bucket, attorney's fees. <laughs> attorney's fees and costs. Uh, and unfortunately, in the employment claims that are brought, the employer is actually ordered to uh, pay attorney's fees and costs for the employee. And so we'll, we'll speak about how that works as well. Gotcha. So let's go ahead and break some of those down. Let's start with back pay and fringe benefits. All right. So with back pay, just you know, emphasize back. This is backward looking. So you're going to have, uh, at some point, you're going to, if a case doesn't settle, you're going to have a jury trial. 
And that jury trial, a typical lifespan of a case uh, these days is between 18 months and 24 months. So let's assume two years from now, uh, you won your jury verdict. What could you get in back pay? Well, that would be any money that you would have earned had you not been terminated from your employer. So that's that's easy to do, right? Because you would have, we'd have access to your W-2 statements and also your paychecks to know what you would have earned. And so the meter just goes, just no different than if you're in a taxi cab, you get in and you're driving around, you see the meter run. Well, the meter is running on your lost wages and benefits from the day after that you're terminated. So we got to calculate and figure out what you would have earned over those two years. Now, the, the bad news is that the employer actually gets credit for any money that you earn after you've been terminated. So understand that you can't be terminated and sit on your couch, put your feet up and binge watch on Walking Dead episodes. You know, you have a you have a duty to mitigate your damages, which means you have a duty to try to find comparable employment. But and if you don't do that, you know, you can actually have your damages cut off because you're you're expected to conduct a quote reasonably diligent search. But understand once you get that job and in terms of what you're going to recover in your back pay award, it's going to be deducted dollar for dollar from anything that you earned from your new employer. So, you know, sometimes it's sort of a catch 22 for an employee because on the one hand for your legal claim, it's worth more if you are out of work a longer period of time, or if you take a job that is making substantially less than your old job, the value of your legal claim actually goes down because the cre- the employer is getting a credit dollar for dollar for those earnings. But the flip side of it too is if you don't conduct your reasonably diligent search, that can also cut off your damages. So what I always tell my clients is, look, you know, don't you live in the real world, not the legal world. So, you know, go out there, try to get the best job you can, you know, as soon as you can. Uh, don't worry about the value of a legal claim, but just understand that the more successful you are in that job search, uh, the lower your back pay award um, is going to be. So that's back pay. Uh, now let's talk about back fringe benefits. So fringe benefits are the you know medical insurance, vision, dental, 401k match, pension, health savings account eligibility, all the sort of bells and whistles that you know you you love to have working for a company. If you are out of work and let's say you had to elect COBRA insurance, for example, and you were you bought COBRA for six months, well, you can recover the cost of that COBRA premium for six months. Or let's say you couldn't afford COBRA and so you were you were now incurring out-of-pocket medical expenses that would have been covered if you would have never been fired, you know, we can recover those out-of-pocket uh, medical expenses as well. And same thing goes with a 401k match. That's easy to do. So, you know, if before you were the beneficiary of a 3% 401k match from the company, you're fired, your new employer doesn't have a 401k match, you know, we're going to want to recover that loss, 3% 401k match. Now, what's nice is that you also get interest. So, you know, add up whatever those figures are, at least in North Carolina, you can recover 8% interest on those amounts, which is a nice feature, especially since at least right as of today, the, you know, the markets are cratering as we're filming this podcast here in uh, March, 2020. And at least there, if they do drag it out, there is a, 
you know, you're, you're recovering something additional for that. Right. And then you say, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably not what you're feeling, but I'm sure. Right. Yeah. So on to the second one, front future pay and uh, fringe benefits. Right. So understand with, with back pay and benefits, that's automatic. So if you win, you're getting your back pay. You're getting your back fringe benefits. Front pay or future lost wages, that is actually, that's discretionary. So the judge in your case, not the jury, is going to decide whether or not you should receive any future lost wages. And so on the top end, the most that obviously that you could seek to recover would be whatever you would have earned through age 66, which is the standard retirement age. So you can't just say, I'm nimble. I was going to work to 70. <laughs> <laughs> I have clients that argue that all the time. But so 66 is the norm. And all, But let's be realistic. So if you got terminated and you were 40, is it fair for us to expect the company to pay you 26 years of front pay? <laughs> no, of course not, right? So Because you're not going to be unemployed for 26 years. So in negotiations anyway, a general rule of thumb for me is, you know, somewhere around five years. But remember, we were talking about mitigation earnings. So even when you're calculating your front pay, we're still going to be deducting what we're projecting to be your mitigation earnings in the future. So let's say in the hypothetical, you make 50 grand less per year in your new job. Well, we're going to want to get 50 grand times five years of future, future losses. All right. That brings us to reputational damage. So, uh, you know, on this one, that it's whenever you're, you're terminated, especially if you're terminated for cause, and let's say that's a pretext for discrimination, that termination for cause is it'll damage your reputation. So uh, it's always frustrating for me where I have a client who has meticulously worked their way up a career ladder over say 20 years of employment. And then all of a sudden they inherit a, a new manager who wrongfully terminates them or has a, a bias against them. You get knocked off your ladder. It's really hard to get back on when you have a termination on your record. And so, you know, you can also recover reputational damages separate and apart from your future lost wages. Question is, you know, how do you, how do you quantify that? And, you know, sometimes we'll hire a forensic accountant or vocational expert to, to testify about the, about that issue. But ultimately it's sort of like pain and suffering in the sense that you can put a number on it, but it isn't, isn't necessarily an exact science. All right. Well, that takes us to consequential damages. Yeah. And then that's, the, that's the one that, you know, why couldn't they give it a better name? And you like, you can't figure out what the heck consequential damages means. Not but, from the context. Right. Exactly. So let me uh, translate that. So it's basically a miscellaneous damages that you've suffered as a consequence of your job loss. So it's not uncommon for folks to have to cash out their 401k plans, you know, to make ends meet after a termination, you incur a penalty for doing that. So let's assume it was a $20,000 penalty or, you know, you can recover that $20,000 back from the employer. If you win, let's say you had to take out a home equity loan in order to uh, keep your house. And that cost you 20 grand in interest, you know, as a consequence of the termination, uh, we can recover that, that interest as well. And then, um, you know, I've, I've had clients who had to sell fa family heirlooms or prized possessions just to uh, make ends meet and to make, and, and to make such sales under duress. So, you know, if it was a, it was calculable that you got 20% less on an item because you needed to sell it in a hurry, we can seek to recover that. 
Also within consequential damages are, are re relocation expenses. So if you've got to move, you know, pack up, you, gotta, you had to hire a mover, you had to sell your house, hire a real estate agent, you had paid a real estate commission. Those are all damages you suffered as a consequence of a termination, and we can seek to recover, recover those as well. Now, importantly, on back pay and, and front pay and fringe benefits and consequential damages, so there are no damages caps on those. So we're about to talk about some buckets in which there are caps on how much a jury or a judge can award. There are no caps on those first three buckets we're talking about. All right. So then that brings us to pain and suffering, emotional distress. Yeah. So this one, this one is, uh, this one is hard to talk about because for, well, first of all, we were just talking earlier about math and formulas. Well, with pain and suffering or emotional distress, there is no formula for, for calculating that. And so even when we're in trial, you know, the lawyers even struggle to figure out like, well, what should we ask the jury to award for pain and suffering or emotional distress? And to some extent, it's really just going with your gut. But there are certainly different factors that we consider in valuing what, what sort of emotional distress or pain and suffering we're going to ask for. And the most important one for me is, uh, is there a medical basis? So for listeners who are, have been wrongfully terminated, you know how you're feeling as you're listening to this. You can't sleep. You're wracked with anxiety. You used to play volleyball all the time, and now you're not, you're not playing volleyball. You're not going to the movies. You look in the mirror and you know that you're different, but you haven't gone and talked to a doctor or a therapist. All you're doing is playing right into the employer's hands by not doing that, because guess what they're going to do? They're going to argue that you were not hurt. You were not traumatized by the termination because you never got any, you never talked to a doctor about it. You never spoke to a therapist. So please, if you know that that termination has been a traumatic event for you, and for most people it really is, please go talk to your primary care physician about how you're feeling. And if your primary thinks that it's appropriate for you to talk to a therapist, go to talk to a therapist. And what's more, don't then be a good patient. So if that is, a, that is, you know, you start in therapy, stay in therapy. If your doctor prescribes you an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication, and obviously if it's not working or you have you know, a bad reaction, you should stop. But be a good patient and follow your doctor's advice in taking your, med your medication because the bean counters on the other side of a table at a mediation that are representing the company are going to be assigning a higher value to your pain and suffering and emotional distress if there's a basis for it. Now, another thing to consider, though, too, is like I'll readily admit to the listeners, hey, I've, I've been to a counselor before, okay? It, that doesn't mean that just because I have a pre-existing condition or I've seen a counselor before in my life doesn't mean I can't recover for pain and suffering and emotional distress as a result of the termination, because the judge and the jury are going to basically figure out what was from what. So let's say that before you had a depression you know, diagnosis and you were taking five milligrams of Wellbutrin, you got fired, you went back to the doctor, and now your, your dosage has been up to you know, another 10 milligrams, for example. Well, that's an exacerbation in a pre-existing depression condition. And so we can go to a judge and jury and say, well, see, 
it got worse. And so it's appropriate for there to be some compensation for that, for that worsening. Same thing goes for counseling. We don't, we don't go through life in this world, you know, unscathed. And so it's not, not uncommon for people to have counseling for different sorts of traumas that happened before. Don't let that stop you. Because if, you know, your therapist or your doctor is able to carve that out and connect the dots to say that the termination is, has, has messed you up further than, you know, you can be, you can be uh, compensated for that. Now, are there any pitfalls to watch out for that the employer uh, may try to tactically deploy? Yeah. I mean, so one trap is understand you're not able to recover emotional distress damages because you're stressed out about you can't pay your bills. So everybody that loses their job is stressed about making ends meet. The stress about making ends meet is not compensable. The employer is not responsible for your stress about not paying bills. So if you're in a deposition and the company attorney is asking you questions about your stress level or your anxiety, he's probably, or she's probably going to try to lead you down this. Oh, it was about, you know, I understand the financial losses and, you know, that must've been very stressful. Was that mostly what you were worried about? No, (laughs) no, it was because you hurt my heart when you, you know, you wrongfully terminated me. Right. right? Trying to lead you to the slaughter. It wasn't wasn't because I was worried about my credit card bill, but they absolutely, that's a really good way to put it, uh, leading to the slaughter. And, you know, the other thing is, they, you know, the company attorney is going to try to get you to put more emphasis on the other traumas in your life so that he can say those were the main factors and why you had an increase in your dosage versus the, the termination itself. Now, we started this out discussing how there were no caps on the last ones we talked about, but what is the cap on the uh, pain and suffering and emotional right. distress? So does it make any sense to you? that Congress would pay, would pass uh, caps back in the 90s and then not update those caps. That sounds about know, right for to inflation. me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there are caps that are literally still in place since the Clinton administration. And so they're really low. So for most employers, the cap under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act or the Americans with Disabilities Act is 300000 But depending on how small... The employer is, if it's under 50 employees, the, the cap is actually $50,000 for emotional distress or pain and suffering. Now, this is why you need a good lawyer. I thought you were about to come with workarounds. <laughs> for sure. There are workarounds to get, to get out from under these stupid caps. In North Carolina, we almost always bring a companion claim to our federal claim. So you got a federal cap on emotional distress. But if you see for wrongful discharge under North Carolina common law, you don't have a cap on emotional distress damages. So always, you know, we always have a counterpart wrongful termination claim under North Carolina law. All right. So then tell us about liquidated punitive damages. So the, these are basically damages where the purpose of it is to punish the uh, employer for doing a bad thing and also deterring this employer or other employers from, from acting in a similar sort of fashion. So when you're valuing a claim, we usually don't rely on or put a lot of money in these liquidated damages or punitive damages buckets because it's a pretty high bar to be able to recover those. And, you know, the legal term for, for doing so is 
basically we have to show maliciousness or willful and wanton behavior. So that doesn't tell our listeners anything. So, uh, but let me, let me translate that to say where it is so obvious that the employer doesn't give a care about what employment obligations there are. They're going to do whatever the hell they want and deal with the consequences later. You know, that's malicious. That's, that's reckless. And that sort of arrogance, you know, brazenness is what you need. Most employers these days, although in the era of the Trump administration, we're seeing more and more of this sort of cowboy behavior. But in general, it's the exception to run into that sort of behavior. But when you do, it's actually uh, really good for your case. So if it's an age discrimination case, you can recover liquidated damages. So liquidated damages are double damages. So when you see liquidated, think double. And that is double whatever your back pay award would have been. Very nice, uh, very nice feature to the Age Discrimination Act. And then under the other federal employment laws, you can recover punitive damages on those. Remember we talked before about those crappy old caps. They're actually in place and they pertain both to punitive damages and pain and suffering combined. So can you imagine no matter how brazen the conduct or how traumatic the injury that there would be a cap of $300,000 or both. That certainly works well for the employer. You're right. And so good, good thing you have uh, a savvy lawyer who knows workarounds to get out from under those stupid old, old caps. But even under North Carolina, sorry to say there's, you know, there's a cap on punitive damages, but not as bad. So under North Carolina law, you can get three times your lost wages, three times your pain and suffering. So if your pain and suffering and lost wages is a million bucks, well, you can get three million bucks uh, in punitive damages in North Carolina. So that's, uh, so that's nice. All right. And that brings us to your favorite one, attorney's fees and costs. Attorney's fees and costs. So anytime we're at a mediation, you know, I'm sitting across the table from a business owner, the company lawyer, I say, understand that you're paying for my time as I'm sitting here today being a pain in your ass. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going you're gonna to pay for every minute of my time and all likelihood all the way through a trial if we win. And sometimes, you know, uh, judges will reduce attorney fee awards if you're not very successful or let's say I wasn't efficient with my time or that sort of thing. And there can be circumstances where it's appropriate to reduce an attorney fee award. But for sure, the general rule is that in where, they, where you're suing for federal employment discrimination or wrongful termination, the company is going to be ordered to pay the attorney fee and cost. And sometimes, like, you know, we represent a lot of executives, but we also represent a lot of factory workers, too, or people in the service industry. And it's not uncommon to have a case where maybe the lost wages, back pay, and front pay was $200,000, but our attorney fee petition was $400,000. And so when we're negotiating with a company, for example, at a mediation, we're pointing out, well, look, you're, you're undervaluing the claim if all you're thinking about is the lost wages and benefits because the attorney fee award is going to be double that. So we're, we're always reminding employers about the fact that these are called fee-shifting provisions where the fees are shifted to the defendant if they lose. All right. Well, before we go, tell me about the Van Camp and Law approach to negotiations. If I come in and I have a case like this, take me through what this is going to look like together. 
Well, it could be a really short road or it could be a really long road. And, um, but, but our clients are always wanting this road to be as short as possible. And so our, our playbook is emphasized on exerting a maximum amount of pressure and intensity and aggressiveness as fast as possible so that we can get the employer to buckle, basically. But it starts out uh, with a polite knock. So there, there are law firms in town that will write uh, a mean, nasty letter and, you know, threatening to file the lawsuit in seven days if this money isn't paid and a hell of a lot of bluster, like I said before, fire and brimstone. That is not an effective way to get a case settled uh, initially. And so we arrive with a, a polite knock at the door in the form of a very short letter of representation. And where we're going to be concentrating our efforts and getting a case settled is not in a letter writing campaign, but in that first contact with the company attorney or representative. So we, we view that first contact with that company attorney as almost as important as an opening statement in a jury trial. And so we'll spend, you know, uh, hours upon hours upon hours actually orchestrating our script of how we're going to present our client's case in that first call, because that's the smart thing to do. We're going to, we're going to work really hard, really fast, really early to try to get a case, uh, case settled. But you have to remember too, though, that be prepared if that doesn't work. And my personal batting average in cases and say coming out of a severance negotiation context is about 600 or, you know, 60% success rate for an early settlement, I'd say. But after that, you got to have a playbook of escalation points. And so there, uh, I don't want to give away all my, uh, my secrets of, of escalation points, but it's, it's always what we're trying to get employers in town to understand. And I, I think most of them do by now is that the longer you fight us in negotiations, the more expensive it's going to be. An employer, you're going to get your best deal early than if you make our client uh, wait and fight. Yeah. And uh, so that's, uh, that's our approach. Well, is there any last words? No, I just appreciate everybody uh, who's listening. And, and I'm hoping that uh, you, you've cracked up at least a few times in some of these podcasts. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Josh. All right. Thanks. Congratulations for taking an important initial step in turning the tables at work. But this podcast is just an educational resource. It does not constitute legal advice and is no substitute for consulting an employment attorney about your unique situation before making legal decisions. Visit our website for more online resources and videos at ncemploymentattorneys.com. Or better yet, call 704-247-3245 for a free initial intake interview so Van Camp and Law can evaluate your case. Until next time, keep your head up and your wits about you.